My name is Greg Boyd. I'm the senior pastor here at Woodland Hills Church. Uh, we had a little bit of worship. We'll be coming back into another time of worship at the end of the message, and then we get into the Word. A couple of announcements here. Uh, we're celebrating our 15-year anniversary. Can you believe that? 15 years. I was 15 years younger when we started. I, I, that just blows me away. That's impossible. Someone made a math calculation or uh, wrong or something. But anyways, we're celebrating this uh, on November 11th, Sunday night from 6.30 to 8. Kind of a special service. Now, this is going to be our covenant partner meeting. But unlike most of our covenant partner meetings, we're inviting everyone to be a part of this. So block that out in your calendar. And if at all possible, be, be a part of this. And children are welcome. If you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Luke. I want to thank Annie for the wonderful job she did last week. We are so blessed to have her. Amen. And so blessed to have a church that knows that we're in the 21st century, not the first century, and women are free to move in any area of ministry that God has equipped them for. Amen. So what a blessing. What a blessing. Uh, I want to say hi also to our podcast congregation, our podrishoners. Who are, I, I, the last two weeks I've been in three different locations traveling out, out, of, out, of the, out of town, and there's always people who come up and say, I'm one of your podrishners. And so, podrishners, let's all say we bless you on three. Ready? One, two, three. We bless you, podrishners. We love you. I'm glad that you're a part of this. This message is entitled A New Reality because it's about learning how to see and operate in a reality that is hidden from most in our culture. Last week, we looked at, Annie looked at how Jesus sent out the 72 to do ministry, his 72 disciples. Now, we're picking this up starting in verse 17 of chapter 10, book of Luke. And the disciples returned to Jesus. And here's what they say. The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. Notice that it's in your name. They're not casting out demons on their own. They're doing it in his name. But they're ecstatic about this. This is wonderful. They have joy over this. And Jesus replied, and listen to this, because we'll be coming back to it here in a little bit. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven, like a thunderbolt. What does that mean? I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. And so Paul has brought us some snakes for us to handle this morning. Is that right, Paul? (laughs) Just kidding. What does that mean, though? What is he talking about there? However, do not rejoice. That's good, but do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you. Here's what you should rejoice in, that your names are written in heaven. Amen. At that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit always brings joy, he said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, Because you've hidden these things from the wise and learned, but you've revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure. What does that mean? And then Jesus says, All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows, listen to this, no one knows who the Son is except the Father. And no one knows who the Father is except the Son. And those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him pause on that for a moment. Jesus is saying that no one really knows who he is except God the Father, and no one really knows who God the Father is except the Son and whoever he is going to reveal him to. See, here's the thing. A lot of people today, 
want to say that Jesus was a good person, a good moral teacher, an insightful teacher, maybe an inspired prophet, maybe even, as they say, an enlightened consciousness. But the Gospels, if you read them, don't give you that alternative. Jesus is here claiming to have a -a one-of-a-kind relationship with God the Father. No one knows God the Father like Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus says. And no one knows Jesus Christ like God the Father. He's claiming to have a direct access to God that no other human being shares. If he is not the Son of God, then he is a lunatic. He's got megalomania to an intense degree. He's crazy. So the Gospels confront us with this decision. You either can say that Jesus Christ was was a lunatic, write him off as crazy. He's not a good human being. He's not a good moral teacher. He's not an inspired prophet. He's crazy. Or bow your knee to him and worship him as the Lord God, the revelation of the Father. But there is no room for this in-between thing, folks. Not if you're dealing with the gospel seriously. Uh, It's it's an all-or-nothing kind of proposition. What is it going to be? Think about that. And then the text goes on to say, Then he, he turned to his disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see what you see but did not see it, and to hear what you hear but they did not hear it. Pray with me here for a moment. Father, I pray for every person in this auditorium and all of our parishioners who are listening right now, whatever they're doing, jogging, washing dishes, or whatever. Lord, open up our eyes so that we can see what we need to see and hear what we we need to hear. Open up our minds to process what is said and our hearts to receive what is said and our will to submit to what is said. That your kingdom may come in our life and in this community as it is in heaven. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Praise God. There's some... Deep stuff here that we're going to chew on. What we believe that we're called to do on these weekend services is simply worship passionately and get into the Word passionately in order to make us passionate disciples to go out and serve the world passionately. So let's dig into this stuff. I'm going to start towards the end of this passage and work my way kind of towards the beginning. So to start, it says in Luke chapter 10, verse 21, Whoa! That's what it says. In In the original Greek, it says, Whoa! Jesus says, whoa, Father. (laughs) Father, I just dropped my microphone. That's what was going on there. Um, He says, you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned, but you've revealed them to little children. What does that mean? What are the things that are hidden from the wise and learned but are revealed to little children? Uh, The things that are mentioned in this passage, and it may include other things as well, but the things that are mentioned specifically in, in this passage is this. Jesus saw Satan falling from heaven like a lightning bolt. Apparently, those who are wise and learned in this world, they can't see that reality, but those who have the eyes and the mind of little children, they can see that. And the disciples, when they went out, they saw that they had authority in Jesus' name to trample on spiritual snakes and scorpions and that the spirits obeyed them when they commanded them to leave in Jesus' name. Those who have the eyes and the minds of little children can see that kind of victory, but apparently those who are wise and learned in their own minds and in the ways of the world, that kind of reality is hidden from them. And so also Jesus says that he's come to reveal God in, in a unique kind of way, that no one really can know who God is unless they're looking at Jesus Christ. Jesus reveals a dimension of God's love and God's beauty, this servant character God. 
And those who have, a wide, who have the eyes of children and the minds of children can see that. But those who are wise and learned in the ways of the world, it's hidden from them. It's not that God is out there intentionally picking and choosing who can see and who can't see. It's rather that God brought about a kind of world where there's, there are spiritual realities which, if you're full of your own wisdom and own learning, it's going to be hidden from you. But if you have the innocence and the humility of a little child, these things will be revealed to you. Who are the wise and the learned to whom these things are, are hidden? I'm really hoping that he's not talking about people with a college education, let alone a PhD, because some of us are going to be in trouble. I don't think that's who he's referring to. Uh, scholars agree that the primary people that Jesus would be referring to here in his day would have been the religious leaders of his day, the Sadducees, the lawyers, and especially the Pharisees. These were folks who, in their own minds, were wise and learned in the things of God. They knew the law. They had their theology. They had their traditions. They had God in a theological box. They had God nailed down. They believed that they knew who God was and what God does and what God doesn't do. They were wise in their own eyes, and they were learned in their own traditions. But that very wisdom and that very learning kept them from seeing the truth that God was revealed in Jesus Christ. Because they looked at the world through the grid of their own wisdom and their own learning and put God in this box, when God himself shows up in the person of Jesus Christ and there's this revelation of beauty and power, they can't see it. They can't see it. They can't believe that God would be on the side of this subversive revolutionary who's undermining their own religious system and thereby undermining them of their prestige and power. Certainly God wouldn't do anything like that. And so they can't see this spiritual reality. And even when they see Jesus perform miracles and even when they see Jesus cast out demons, they still can't see it. They end up saying, well, Jesus, well, he does this stuff. He casts out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. See, they, their, their theological system, their wisdom and learning won't allow them to see the obvious, and so they have to explain it away. At one point in the Gospels, it says that the Father spoke from heaven and said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the lawyers, they heard this, but they didn't really hear it. And so it, it didn't fit their theological grid to say that that was really God confirming the ministry of Jesus. So what they said was, was that thunder? Oh, wow, that was a weird kind of thunder. But you have to explain it away. These things of God, the spiritual realities of God, are, are hidden from those who are wise in their own eyes and learned in their own eyes. Today, we have that same thing going on in religious circles. People who just are convinced that all the theological truth that was ever out there, they inherited in third grade and Sunday school class, and they've got nothing more to learn. They've got God down. They've got God in their theological box. And, and when there's things that they don't know and beautiful things out there about the kingdom that, that's not part of their theological system, they have to declare it to be heresy because it doesn't fit their little theological box because they are wise and learned in their own understanding. But the, the, the kind of wisdom and learning I want to focus on for a moment here is of a different sort. It's one that in particular plagues us as Western people. It's a wisdom and a learning that comes from what's called a naturalistic worldview, which is simply a view of the world where you assume that everything happens by natural laws of cause and effect. It's the worldview that comes out of the scientific revolution of the 16th and 17th century and the Enlightenment period. It's a worldview that we're all influenced by. It has no room for the supernatural. 
They have, they, have, they, have, they have a wisdom and a learning about the world, and they're confident that everything that ever happens fits into their little naturalistic box. In the last 10, 15 years, there's been a, a rising movement of very vocal atheists. Some of you are, are, are maybe familiar with this, of uh, people who are really aggressively coming against belief in God. They're anti-theist. They're anti-religion. And they're writing some very influential books that are impacting a lot of people. Uh, one of these authors is Richard Dawkins, who wrote the book The God Delusion. Some of you are maybe familiar with him. Another is Christopher Hitchens, who wrote uh, a very interesting, angry, but witty book called God Is Not Great. Another one is Sam Harris, who, uh, among other books, wrote Letters to a Christian Nation. This is called A New Breed of Atheists, and atheism is actually on the rise, partly as a result of their influence. They represent this God, this, this, this uh, wisdom and learning of the world where they think they've got the entire creation in a box. Now, I want to say this before I go any further. I've read these books. And on one, on the one hand, I want to say that most of their critique about religion, I agree with. They, they, they really expose the harm and the dangers and the evils of religion, including the Christian religion. And as I'm reading these books and they're swinging the sword and, and really deconstructing the, the whole religious enterprise, not all, but most of what they say, I go amen to. Because the kingdom of God is not about a religion. Jesus didn't come to give us yet another religion. The kingdom of God is about a movement who have got Christ being formed in them. And religion is the main opposition that we face. So if these atheists are going to dismantle religion, I'm going to be on the front lines going, go boys, do it. Amen. I'll, I'll even say this, that Part, not all, but part of their atheism, I agree with. <sighs> Pastor Boyd just agreed with the atheist. <laughs> crucify him, crucify him. <laughs> oh, look, 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 look. Here's what I mean. As I read these books, th th there's most, uh, the picture of God that they reject is for the most part a picture of God that I think should be rejected. Uh, they have a very strong and I think mostly valid critique of this picture of God where God is meticulously controlling everything that happens and therefore God is behind all the evil and the horror and the holocaust of the world and, and, and they, they, they reject that God. And about that, I want to say amen to that as well. If that was the only God I had to believe in, I'd have trouble believing in that God. Fortunately, the God I believe in is the God revealed in Jesus Christ. So, so there's much of what they say that I actually agree with. But I have to also say this. As you read these books and others like them, I'm impacted by, I'm impressed with the level of confidence, I'd even have to call it arrogance, that oozes in the pages of these works. These folks are just so completely convinced that they have got the world figured out. They are just so convinced that everything can be explained by science. And thank God for science, and thank God for the technology science develops, wonderful and good, but they're so convinced that science tells the whole story. And I'm here to tell you that it doesn't. They're so convinced that, that there is no God, everything that's real is material, physical in nature. They're so convinced that human beings are just the chance product of, of natural laws of cause and effect. They're so convinced that there is no God, and Jesus wasn't the Son of God, and there are no angels, and there are no demons. We are just complex protoplasm, just evolved amoebas. They're so confident about that. They've, they are wise and learned in the ways of the world, and everything fits into that little naturalistic box. 
And so they, there's much about the world that they can't see. They're looking at the world through the grid of their own theological presuppositions, and all of the spiritual deeper stuff is hidden from them. See, as I look at the world, it seems to me ludicrous to think that you can reduce the human experience of love down to chemical uh, uh, c collusions, chemicals in motion, or to think that you can reduce spiritual experience down to just chance natural processes, or, 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 or our ability to think rational thoughts, that that's just chemical processes, or our ability to experience beauty in nature and beauty in music and beauty in writing, to reduce that down to chemical uh, bursts of explosion or neurological transactions in the brain. That strikes me as ludicrous. If you... If you look at the world with your eyes open, yes, there's truth that, that there's a physical world and, and laws of physics, and I'm not against any of that, but you can't reduce the human experience of love and our moral convictions and our aesthetic experiences and our spiritual experiences down to that. But see, if your assumption, if your assumption going into this is that there are only natural laws of cause and effect, well, then you can't see that. You just can't. Your, your brain won't allow you to see that. It's the same thing, I believe, when people look at the historical evidence for, for, for Jesus Christ. I think if you look at the evidence with open eyes and objectively, there is this compelling, compelling evidence that the Gospels are historically reliable, that Jesus did the miracles that are attributed to him, he, he made the divine claims that are attributed to him, like we read a little bit earlier, and he rose from the dead. The historical evidence is powerful. But if, if, if you look at that evidence with the assumption that miracles never occur, with the assumption that there is no supernatural, well, then you have no choice but to dismiss all of that, regardless of all the historical evidence that, that is there. Commercial break. Paul Eddy and I, my good friend Paul Eddy and I, just, uh, just came out with two books. Uh, they're not yet on the shelves. They'll be here next week. One's an academic book called The Jesus Legend with about four zillion footnotes. The other one is a popular book called Jesus Lord or Legend, which is probably the book that you want to get. Uh, but what we do there is we just take every argument that scholars have used to try to argue that the Gospels are not historically reliable, that they're at least partly, if not mostly, legendary, and we just you know, put them to the light of reason and show that they're unfounded. What drives the whole thing is the assumption that the Gospels can't possibly be historically reliable. Why? Because they include super, the, the supernatural. If you get over that assumption, the evidence is very, very strong. But if you're looking at the world and therefore looking at historical evidence through the eyes of your presuppositions, uh, you're wise and learned in your own eyes and you got the world all figured out, you can't see any of that. It's hidden from you. The truth is that God does exist, folks. There are angels all around us this very minute. There, Jesus Christ is with us this very minute. There are demons that populate this world. We're involved in spiritual warfare, but if you assume that the world is, is all just natural, you can't see any of that. You can't interact with any of that. Now, what concerns me more than, than the fact that we've got some intellectuals who believe this is the fact that all of us, all of us to some degree, are influenced by this naturalistic worldview. We in the West are heirs of this scientific revolution, this enlightenment, and to some degree, we're affected by this. It is in various ways, hard for us to really uh, move in the spiritual realm and to see it as real. We believe it's real, perhaps, but it's hard for us to experience it as real. It's why American Christians tend to compartmentalize their faith. We, we, we do Jesus, God stuff on the weekends and maybe pray once in a while, but we live our moment-to-moment -moment lives. We tend to live our moment-by-moment -moment lives as though God didn't exist. We, we're really functional atheists. God and, and the spiritual realm isn't really a reality to us 
uh, throughout our, 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 most of our waking moments. We're conditioned to have this wisdom and learning from this naturalistic worldview pollute our perception of the world. Jesus says we need to gain the eyes and the understanding of little children. Uh, here's the thing about little children. They haven't yet learned what they're not supposed to know. They haven't yet learned uh, all the truths about the world. They're not wise in their own eyes. They're not learned in their own eyes. They look at the world, as it were, with virgin eyes. That's why they look at the world with wonder. Anything is possible. They don't yet close off all the cases uh, of what can be true and what can't be true. And Jesus says we need to adapt that kind of innocent, pure way of looking at the world, that humble, innocent, pure way of looking at the world. Here's an example of what I'm talking about. I was out in Detroit this last week doing a seminar on, on imaginative prayer. And a lady came up to me uh, during one of the breaks and uh, asked me a question. And in the, in the course of asking me a question, uh, she told me a story about a five-year-old boy. He'd been in Sunday school all of his life, but for some reason in the last couple months, the coin sort of dropped in the slot for this little boy. And he learned that Jesus is everywhere and that Jesus is his friend. So wherever he goes, his friend Jesus is there. And so this little boy starts talking to Jesus all the time. Wherever he goes, Jesus is right there, and he's talking to Jesus. She told me about a conversation she eavesdropped in on while she was driving the car. Her son was strapped in the back, and he starts having a conversation with Jesus. He's eating a sandwich while he's having this conversation. And out of nowhere, he says, Jesus, thank you for making my teeth. Isn't that beautiful? <laughs> See, how many of us think about thanking God for our teeth? Now, those of you who don't have teeth, you maybe are asking God for teeth, but those of us who have them, like, Jesus, I just thought I'd thank you right now for my teeth. But see, this little boy, thank you for my teeth. And when they sit down at the supper table, he makes them have a chair for Jesus to have a place to sit. And when he goes to bed at night, he has a, a separate pillow so Jesus has some place to sleep. It's just precious. But this, this lady was a little worried. She goes, is this normal for a five-year-old to be, you know, doing this? And see, Richard Dawkins, who knows so much about the real world, right? And Sam Harris, these guys have just got it all figured out. They'd say, well, that's just child fantasy. That's just make-believe. That's just imaginary friend. Hopefully he'll outgrow this. But I submit to you that this five-year-old is in on a truth that we adults need to learn something about. Amen? Because the truth is, the truth is that Jesus is with you every moment of your day. Jesus is with you when you're driving the car. Jesus is with you when you're sitting down at the supper table. Jesus is with you when you're going to bed. And Jesus did make your teeth. And, and, and see, the trouble is, is that we who can be wise and learned in the ways of the world, we don't think about that. We don't, in, we don't integrate the presence of Jesus into our day-by-day -day lives. We go about our lives just operating on the natural law of cause and effect. We need to learn from this kid to cultivate the eyes of a child with that innocence. And, and, and throughout the day, know that Jesus is with us. Think about it this way. If right now what you're experiencing and what you're aware of are just a bunch of people listening to a guy talk, you're missing out on one very important aspect of reality, and that is Jesus Christ is sitting right next to you. He's closer to you than your own skin. So if you have the eyes of a child and are aware of that as well as the physical realm here, your way of looking at the world is more accurate than those who aren't aware of God's presence this moment. We need to learn, break out of this naturalistic worldview and cultivate into our moment-by-moment -moment lives a conversation with Jesus. Paul says, pray without ceasing. Be talk. That prayer is just a religious word for talk. Talk to God. Talk to God throughout the day. Be aware of Jesus Christ's presence. Be aware that there's a spiritual realm that can influence us. Sometimes we take hits from the demonic realm, but because we're looking at the world through our naturalistic lenses, our grid of learning and wisdom, we don't process it like that. 
And, and so we don't uh, uh, aggressively do the warfare that God calls us to do, to take authority over those things. There's one aspect of the disciples' experience that, we, that is hidden from us most of the time, and that is that we can have victory over the principalities and powers. We can have victory over the serpents and the scorpions. We can trample on them. And see, the joy of that victory we miss because we're not being involved in the spiritual realm. I thank God for the natural realm, and you've got to deal with natural stuff, but be aware that there's a spiritual war going on. And as you're aware of that and aware of God's presence around you, there'll be times where he may call you to start shooting prayers in the direction of the spiritual realm and start participating in that spiritual warfare and see the difference that it makes. I was in a prayer meeting with a lady this last week, and she shared that she, several months ago, she and a friend decided to start up this ministry because we're all called to be ministers. And... Uh, no sooner had she and her friend decided to do this and started working towards it when quite literally all hell broke loose. And, and the, the issues began to rise in their marriages and issues started happening with them and their kids and their kids started acting out ways they had never done before and, and, and there's miscommunications and there seemed to be sort of a pollution to all of their relationships and even te technological things started breaking down. Now that could just be coincidence. Could just be natural cause and effect. But I don't think so. That shouldn't be my assumption. And so what we did is we, we came around this young lady and we said, we need, to, we need to do warfare in the spiritual realm. Yes, deal with the natural stuff. If you need to go to a marriage counselor, go to a marriage counselor. If you need to take the parenting with love and logic class, take the parenting class. Deal with the natural realm. But know that there's a whole other reality here. It's the new reality, this different reality, which is the spiritual realm. And so we came around her and we applied the victory of the cross to her life and prayed that Jesus would be a fence all around her and protect her and protect her kids and protect her friendships. And we asked the Holy Spirit to depollute her life and to cast those things out. I haven't talked with her since then, but I, I'm, I'm telling you on the authority of God's word that if she perseveres in that kind of warfare, she's going to see a liberation, praise God. And she'll start experiencing... Just start seeing what the disciples saw, and that's that we have authority to take, to trample on those serpents and scorpions. Okay, that's my first point. I've got to speed it up here a little bit. Um, Jesus says in verse 18, to go back more towards the beginning, I saw Satan fall from heaven like a lightning bolt. What does that mean? Scholars agree that Jesus here is alluding to an Old Testament verse found in the book of Isaiah where Isaiah is on the one hand speaking about the king of Babylon, but he, in, in, as he speaks about the king of Babylon in chapter 14 of Isaiah, he zooms out and then also speaks about the principality and power behind the king of Babylon, who, who of course is Satan. And so it says this in Isaiah 14, verse 12. How have you fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn? You have been cast down to earth, you who once laid low the nations. Now here's what's going on. Isaiah is referring to the planet Venus. Uh, that's the morning star. And in the morning, very often, Venus will shine much brighter. It'll be the brightest light in the, in the sky. It will shine brighter than all the other stars. But the moment the sun peeks out over the horizon as it's rising, Venus just disappears like that. And we know that in the ancient world, they were very impressed by this. And most ancient people believed that the stars were literally gods. And so they came to see the morning star as sort of a symbol for any, any spiritual entity that overstepped its bounds, got arrogant and prideful. It shines for a moment, but as, so, as, as soon as truth, as soon as light comes out, 
it vanishes altogether. How quickly you have fallen. How quickly you have disappeared. And so Isaiah here is, is applying that to Satan, and that's what Jesus is doing. Jesus is, is, is saying that as these disciples went out and did spiritual warfare and healed the sick and freed people from demonic oppression, uh, that light which looks so bright is disappearing. He's, to change metaphors, he's falling to the ground like lightning. As a little historical note, just a little information here. Um, when the Bible was translated into Latin in the 4th century by St. Jerome, he translated morning star or son of the dawn as lucis fera in Latin, which means light bearer, the one who bears light in the morning. Lucis fera. And then in popular language, that became Lucifer. Lucis fera became Lucifer. And that's how we got the idea that Satan's name before he fell was Lucifer. It's really not in the Bible. It's in the, the Latin translation, sort of, of the Bible. Uh, and since we don't know what that being's name was before he fell, we might as well call him Lucifer. But I just wanted you to know that it's not really, there's no text that says his name was Lucifer before he fell. Jesus is using a way of, a form of speech here which is easily misunderstood. It was common in the ancient world, but it's not common today. It's called proleptic speech, where you refer to a process as though it was complete. And you do it to emphasize how certain it is that this process will be completed. So Isaiah says that the, the, the uh, Venus, the star, has fallen down. Jesus says the star has fallen down. But it's not like we no longer have to do warfare against Satan. When Jesus says how quickly he has fallen, it's not like that happened once upon a time and he's not falling anymore. Rather, Jesus is saying that as he sends out his disciples to do this warfare, to build the kingdom, Satan is being toppled. They're bringing Satan down. And that, folks, is our job yet today. We're supposed to bring the dude down. Uh, Jesus dealt a death blow to him. Amen. He dealt a death blow to him. But our job is to be guerrilla warriors stationed behind enemy-occupied territory and, and, and to take him down by the way that we live, by the way that we serve, by the authority and the power that, that we move in. We are still about toppling the enemy's empire. And that's why Jesus says in verse 19, I give you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Okay, what's that about? Snakes and scorpions and some other creatures in the Bible, uh, creatures that, that have poison and can sting us and kill us, um, they, 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 they were commonly viewed as being the result of the fact that the world is not the world that God originally created, but it's one that's oppressed by demonic powers. If, if we had not fallen and surrendered our authority over to the enemy, we wouldn't be having to deal with snakes and scorpions. And in the biblical tradition, therefore, snakes and scorpions became symbols of demonic powers themselves. That's why Satan is portrayed as a snake in the Garden of Eden, and you find this in other places in the Bible. And what they're saying here is this. In the same way that snakes and scorpions are always trying to bite us and sting us and poison us, so also we've got to know that there are things in the spiritual realm that are always trying to bite us and sting us and poison us. They're trying to rob us of the abundant life that Jesus Christ came to give us. That's a reality we have to contend with. And thankfully, Jesus says, I give you authority not just to step on them, but to trample them, praise God, to trample them. What you've got to know, kingdom person, is this. You have in Jesus Christ, not as a magical formula, but just because your heart is surrendered to the king, and therefore the power of the kingdom is flowing in you. 
As you walk in the authority and the surrendered relationship to Jesus Christ, you have authority over everything in the spiritual realm that has any assignment against you. You have the authority to step on that snake of addiction that's been biting you for so long. You don't need to be poisoned any longer. In Jesus' name, take authority over that. You have the authority to step on the back of that scorpion that's been stinging you with that lust addiction for so long. It's time in Jesus' name to take authority over that. You have authority to step on the head of that snake of rage that's been biting you and poisoning you so long. Manifest the abundant life of Jesus Christ and step on that in Jesus' name. And you've got the authority to trample on the back of that scorpion of jealousy or envy or bitterness, unforgiveness that's been poisoning you for so long. Take authority over that in Jesus' name. Ask God for wisdom on what to do in the natural realm to get free of the bondages that you have in your life, the attitudes that you have in your life, the behaviors that you have in this life. Yes, deal with the natural realm. But it begins when you start by taking authority to trample on what God tells you you can trample on. And in Jesus Christ, it's everything in the spiritual realm. In fact, Jesus goes so far as to say this in verse 19. Nothing can harm you. Nothing can harm you. Now, the primary application of this has to do with the spiritual realm. Though in Acts 26, Paul is bitten by a snake and he doesn't die. So there can be protection against physical snakes and scorpions, but there's no guarantees about that. Realize that all of the disciples and Jesus himself, they suffered physical harm. And throughout church history, Christians have suffered physical harm. Uh, there are, in this war zone where there are spiritual and human wills that aren't aligned with God, things can happen to us that are not God's will. There is no magic here. Praying for protection is good and makes a difference, but it doesn't magically guarantee that you're going to be unharmed. And anyone who tells you differently, folks, they're selling you a, bit of good, a bill of goods. And, 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 and what concerns me is that if you end up getting bit, if you end up getting harmed, if the rape happens to you or your daughter or some other tragedy happens, now they indict you for having it happen to you. Now, if you were to have been walking in faith and walking with Jesus, then no harm would come to you. Uh, the, the, the main application of this passage is not on the physical realm, it's on the spiritual realm. It's what Paul's getting at when he says this in, in Romans chapter 8. I love this passage. Listen to this. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble? Shall hardship? Shall persecution or famine? Or being without any clothing? Or danger? Or sword? See, those things can happen to you. And they happen to Paul. They happen to disciples throughout church history. But he says, no. In all these things, we are not just conquerors. We're more than conquerors through him who loved us. And then Paul says, For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor the present, nor the future, nor any powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation. That kind of covers it, I think. Nothing but nothing but nothing but nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is our victory. That is our victory. Amen. Nothing can harm you on that. Things can happen. We live in a war zone. We take hits. Uh, Paul presupposes that all those things can happen to us. But when they happen to us, in the middle of them happening to us, that doesn't take away our victory. We can still trample on the backs of the snakes and the scorpions because nothing but nothing can touch our relationship with Jesus Christ. Which is why Jesus goes on to say this. Rejoice, not in the fact that you have a present ability to rout demons, but here's what you should rejoice in. Rejoice that your name is written in heaven. 
Be happy about the fact that you have authority in the spiritual realm right here and right now. Be happy about the fact that, that Jesus can be your fence. Be happy about that, but don't put your joy in that. Not in this war zone. Rather, you anchor your joy in the fact that your name is written in heaven. There's a register in heaven, and if you're surrendered to Jesus Christ, your name is on that register, and it's written with the indelible blood of Jesus Christ. There's your security, and there's your joy. Amen. Amen. I, I, am, I am delighted. I am happy that I have the ability right here and right now to more or less, I'm still growing in it, but to manifest the abundant life of Jesus Christ. And I'm so happy I have authority to, 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 take, to take power over the, anything in the spiritual realm that is against me or my family. And I'm delighted that Jesus can be my fence. And I'm delighted that he calls me to, to share the word of God with all of you. I have so many spiritual blessings. I'm happy about that. But my joy, I want to anchor my joy into something that can never change, that can't be given to me, that can't be taken from me, that can't be affected by anything in my life. I might lose my voice tomorrow and never get it back. There's no guarantee in this war zone that will make me sad but it can't take away my joy because my joy is rooted in the fact that i'm destined to go to heaven with jesus christ and reign in this kingdom forever and ever and ever amen yes you make that joy that's the joy that is here that we're singing about and it applies to all of our life. Folks, if you got good health, be happy about that. If you got a nice home, be happy about that. You got a nice car, be happy about that. You got family and friends, be happy about that. But don't root your core joy in that. Because those things can change. And if the Lord doesn't come back, you're going to lose them all. Because you're going to die. I hate to be the one to give you the bad news, but you're going to die. And when you die, you let go to all of that. And if your core joy is rooted in those things, you can't help but live in some anxiety and fear and clutchiness, which robs you of the abundant life of Jesus Christ. No, no, be happy for those things, but find your joy in one thing only. And that is the fact you're a child of God and destined to reign with him. Uh, that, that can give you a joy which you can have if you've got the health, but even if you don't have the health, the joy is still there. If you've got the house, but if you don't have the house, the joy is still there. A fire may come and take away your house. Ask the people in California. But if you have your joy written in something that cannot be changed and cannot be altered and cannot be abrogated, now you've got a joy that cannot be taken away from you. That is the real joy. Thank God for all the good things we have in this life. But we trample on the serpents and the snakes in the spiritual realm when even when we don't have those things, it doesn't separate us from the love of Jesus Christ because we know that our name is written in heaven. Close your eyes for a moment. And as, I, as the worship team and the choir, which I love so much, comes back up here, and as the ushers get ready, we're going to go into another time of, of worship here. But let me just ask you this question and give the Holy Spirit a chance to seal this. Question number one. Do you know, not just do you hope, but do you know that your name is written in heaven's register with the indelible blood of Jesus Christ? And is that your core source of joy? If it's not, I encourage you right now to surrender your life to Jesus Christ. Give him the reign of your life. Make him Lord of your life. Surrender to him. That's not about a magical prayer or a magical deed. It's a commitment like getting married. It means nothing if you're not going to walk it out. So don't do it if you're not ready. I'm okay with that. But if you are ready, do it. And get your name registered. And if you make that decision right now, I want you to show that you meant it by after this service, come up here, and we'll have a prayer team up here, and tell the people what you did. And let them pray for you to seal this. Holy Spirit, do your work. Here's another question. 
Do you know that you have authority to trample on snakes and serpents? Are you living in anxiety because you lack confidence in the spiritual realm? If that applies to you right here and right now, I want you to ask the Holy Spirit to give you that confidence. Hear Jesus, even in your mind, see Jesus say to you, I've given you authority to trample on snakes and serpents. And receive that, just receive that as being the word of God. And ask the Holy Spirit to help you be convinced of that. So you, you walk in confidence. There's no fear for those who walk in the love of God. Perfect love casts out fear. Lose that. And finally, I ask this question. Holy Spirit, reveal to us what we need to know. Do you live your moment-by-moment life with the awareness of the spiritual realm? Or have you been polluted by this thing called naturalism? Do you talk to God throughout the day? Is he a reality in your life? And if the Holy Spirit is telling you right now that this kind of applies to you, then just ask the Holy Spirit to remind you to carry out a conversation with Jesus Christ when you're driving in the car and sitting down at the table and going to bed at night and throughout your day. Ask the Holy Spirit to help you remember to stay aware of the reality of the spiritual realm, to have the eyes, the innocent eyes of a child that are, it's not polluted by our contemporary naturalistic worldview. Holy Spirit, do you work here. Do you work here. Seal on our hearts what we need to have sealed to walk out of here as kingdom people. In Jesus' name, amen. And now, folks, we're going to do some warfare. Worship is about a decision to focus in the now, to ascribe to God unsurpassable worth, Think about who you're singing to and what you're singing about and what we're celebrating. And as we all make the decision to put everything else on our minds aside and for the next 30 minutes focus on Jesus Christ and celebrate spiritual truths, what we're doing is that is the light of the sun that is shining. And when the sun shines, that little tiny bright Venus disappears. So worship is spiritual warfare. Proclaiming truth is spiritual warfare. Honoring God is spiritual warfare. There's no better way to flush out the snakes and scorpions in your life uh, than to worship God passionately. So I want us now, for the next 30 minutes, to enter into passionate praise and celebration of God. Maybe you're not getting bitten by a scorpion right now, but the person to your right or left might be. And so for their sake, and for, certainly for God's sake, let's focus our minds and give him the praise and honor that is due his name. As we worship God, we'll start by taking up an offering because that is an act of worship. We ascribe to God worth to him and his kingdom by how we sacrifice of our resources. The norm will have us stand and we'll enter in some warfare celebration. And at that point, if you want to come up here and dance or to the side, as Norma's saying, feel free, however you want to express, passionately express the truth of what we're singing about and who we're singing to, do it. So Lord, bless this time, this worship, Holy Spirit. Fill this space. Give us eyes to see that you are here. We're singing to you. You're closer to us than our own skin. And be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen.
Bless you, choir. We love having you guys, worship leaders. Oh, man, praise God. You're a blessing to us. You are a blessing to us. Amen. That's warfare, folks. That's jubilee. That's celebration. That's trampling on the scorpions and the snakes. Amen. Amen. Oh, it's, it's refreshing. It's joyful to be in the house of God and celebrating God like that. But the prayer teams come up here. If you this morning uh, surrendered your life to Christ and got your name on that register, you need to come up and tell these folks about it and to seal that and have them pray with you. If you have any other need whatsoever that you'd like to have prayed for, maybe you're getting sniffed at, maybe something's biting you in the spiritual realm, come up here and these folks would love to pray with you. Or if you just want to pray on your own at the altar, that's fine as well. But Lord, as we leave this place, help us to walk with that encouragement, that fearlessness, that boldness, knowing that you are with us every moment. Help us to have the eyes of little children that see the world as it really is instead of polluted by our Western worldview, Lord God. Help us, Lord God, to know that you're always with us. You'll never leave us or forsake us. When we sit down to eat, you're there. When we drive in the car home right now, you are there. Help us to talk to you, Lord God, and become more sensitive to the spiritual realm. And Lord God, out of that, help us, Lord God, to walk with the fearlessness that tramples on the scorpions and the serpents in the spiritual realm that are sniffing at us, knowing that you are our fence and our protection, and nothing can separate us from the love of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said one last time. Go out and build a kingdom.